Hi, everybody, um, and welcome to this session on doing empirical global priorities research, the question of civilizational collapse and recovery with Louisa Rodriguez. Um, my name is Bridget, and I'll be the MC for this session. So we'll be starting with a 15 minute talk by Louisa, and then we'll move on to a live Q&A session where she'll respond to some of your questions. Um, but now I'd like to introduce our speaker for the session. Uh, so Louisa Rodriguez is a research fellow at the Forethought Foundation for Global Priorities Research. Previously, she conducted cause prioritization research at Rethink Priorities and the Future of Humanity Institute. She's also conducted cost effectiveness analysis for nonprofit and government programs, including at Impact Matters, Innovations for Poverty Action, and GiveWell. Here's Louisa. So, I'm going to talk about um, how I got to be doing this type of global priorities research, given my background. Um, I'll also talk a bit about how to identify high priority research questions. So questions that will actually change what we think about our priorities. I'll also talk about what this research looks like concretely, like on the day to day. Um, and then I'll end by suggesting some ways you can test your fit for this type of work. Um, yeah, so uh, this is me at my college graduation. Uh, I went to Carleton College, which is a liberal arts school in rural Minnesota, and I majored in sociology. But um, because it's liberal arts, I also studied kind of a bit of everything. Um, yes, yeah, so that was uh, 2016. Uh, at the time, I was about to go intern for GiveWell before starting a master's in international development. Um, yeah, and as Bridget mentioned, um, I now work with Will McCaskill at the Forethought Foundation, where I'm helping Will write a new book on long-termism, um, but also doing my own research into how much we should worry about uh, civilizational collapse. Um, so quite a big uh, career pivot, I suppose. Um, a key part of that pivot happened after I joined Rethink Priorities in 2019, um, about when I decided I wanted to try working on long-termist research rather than global development. Um, so I'd been asked to evaluate the impact of a treaty um, that would ban nuclear weapons for any country who signed on. Um, the question I was trying to answer was basically, um, is this kind of thing that uh, the effective altruism community should support? Um, we thought this might be a good fit for me because I'd done a lot of um, impact evaluation in the um, global poverty space before. Um, but I didn't have a very strong understanding of nuclear risks, so my initial approach to answering this question was very simplistic. Um, it's basically just, you know, figure out how many people would be killed during a nuclear war, figure out how much this treaty would reduce the risk of nuclear war, and then estimate the expected life saved based on that treaty. Um, and I literally started this work by Googling how many people would be killed by a nuclear war. Um, so this question is very problematic. Um, a nuclear war between which countries? What kind of targets might be attacked? Um, what size of nuclear weapons are used? Um, I ended up learning that nuclear weapons differ by several uh, orders of magnitude. Um, so this matters a bunch. Um, also, would the nuclear war cause a nuclear winter? So would you see additional deaths um, from kind of that perspective? Um, so lots of, lots of sub-questions, but I started um, listing these factors kind of systematically, um, breaking this big question down into smaller ones. Um, and this is basically just what that looked like. Um, you can see you end up with a lot of questions. Um, and when you get detailed enough, um, you can start to find answers to those questions. Um, so the question, how many people would a nuclear war kill? 
basically impossible to answer. doesn't make sense as a question. Um, but I did find academic papers that used data from early nuclear weapons tests to estimate kind of roughly how many people would be killed in the 50 largest cities in these 13 countries if there was a nuclear detonation the size of the one detonated by the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. So this is basically how I made progress on a seemingly massive question. Um, I want to emphasize that I actually had, um, again, not much background in this. Um, what I did have was an interdisciplinary background. So my liberal arts degree meant that I studied math, social science, physical science. Um, I'd made some very rough cost-effectiveness models for GiveWell, um, but these were like 15 rows um, big, so not very complicated. Um, but I was able to use that um, background knowledge as a kind of scaffolding on top of which I could build new skills, new knowledge um, base whenever, um, whenever I needed to. Um, of course, we need experts too. Um, but one thing I found really surprising is just how willing experts are to respond to emails from random people. It turns out that academics love it when people are interested in their work. Um, so they're usually very keen um, for it to get used in some practical way. Um, so as a kind of bonus tip, if you get comfortable reaching out to experts, you can often cash in on their accumulated expertise without getting a PhD yourself. Um, yeah, so um, anyways, after all of that, um, I had kind of a rough sense of what kind of nuclear war might lead to a nuclear winter, um, which was said to be the most deadly outcome kind of fall for the nuclear war space, um, and how likely such a nuclear winter was, given the most plausible nuclear war scenarios. Um, but I realized my model didn't account for a final step in the argument that nuclear war caused um, a famine so extreme that it might uh, result in extinction or unrecoverable civilizational collapse. Um, so for example, I didn't know how exactly um, a nuclear winter would affect agricultural productivity um, in different regions, um, or how mitigations, uh, mitigation strategies like planting more robust crops or even everyone becoming vegetarian um, might um, kind of reduce the severity of a global famine. And this felt really important to me. Um, we're investing a lot of resources in these cause areas, um, and these questions seemed like someone questions someone should have thought about. Um, yeah, so my initial instinct was to defer to others who surely worked this kind of thing out. Um, but I think this is a very common and very problematic thought pattern in the effective altruism community. Um, this kind of like, I don't see the answer to this very important question anywhere, but what do I know? Um, surely community leaders um, know the answers, have thought it through. Um, so my advice is to challenge this thinking. The effective altruism community hasn't thought of everything yet, hasn't answered every question, hasn't even thought of all the questions to answer. Um, and actually I've come to think that that kind of thought um, uh, where you assume someone should have answered an important question is actually a great signal for an opportunity to make a real contribution to our community's priorities. I think we desperately need this as a community. Um, if not, we run the risk of becoming kind of a pyramid scheme of ideas where the weekly held beliefs of thought leaders are believed to be kind of worked out facts and never explored more deeply in kind of like a game of telephone um, that leads to overconfidence um, in certain yeah priorities. So things that feel like gaps, 
Those might just be high priority research questions. Anyways, um, I got to this point in my work on nuclear threats and again, started feeling like the community should have a much better understanding of how civilization might fare if there were a catastrophe, not so severe as to cause immediate extinction, but possibly severe enough to cause civilization to collapse. So this is what I turn to next. Um, again, it's an incredibly difficult and complex question, um, so how concretely does one go about answering it? Um, so this depends massively on the question you're answering, but my main piece of advice um, for at least this type of empirical research are breaking the question down, as I said, um, especially when questions feel really hard. Um, or involve a lot of social science, um, things that are hard to predict. Um, I look for lots of different sources of information um, to help answer the question. Um, and then finally, yeah, writing down your thoughts um, and putting numbers to things so that you can get feedback, um, I think is huge, um, scary, but huge. So for example, um, once I broke my civilizational uh, collapse questions down, um, one of the sub-questions I tried to answer um, was, would society be able to rebuild um, its critical symptoms after a global collapse that killed over 90% of people and caused kind of massive in infrastructure damage in the countries most likely to be targeted by the US-Russia nuclear war? Um, so in this case, I thought there were lots of different types of evidence worth looking into. One thing I started by doing um, was thinking about particularly devastating wars and natural disasters um, as analogs for, for civilizational collapse. Um, I think I had the vague expectation that lots of cities had kind of been wiped off the map after such events. Um, so I thought um, this might speak to the difficulty of reconstruction and recovery, what kind of key bottlenecks were in those instances and whether um, there's anything our community could do to um, reduce those bottlenecks. Um, in fact, I actually learned that recovery was um, surprisingly quick in some instances. So um, just as one example, the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima by the US um, killed 141,000 people and destroyed 69% of Hiroshima's buildings and critical infrastructure. Despite all this, um, power was restored to the rail station and port within a day um, to 30% of homes within two weeks and to all homes within two months. Um, and um, yeah, even more impressively to me, the population reached its pre-World War II levels um, after just over a decade. Um, so I think of all that as um, some evidence um, that uh, rebuilding reconstruction um, might, be, might be more feasible than I'd originally expected. Um, of course, these literatures are very different from the type of catastrophe I was interested in, um, so one that's kind of global in scale with unprecedented population losses. Um, so I explored ways that a global catastrophe might be different from a regional one. Um, so again, I approach this in lots of ways, um, including interviewing experts, um, among other things. One thing I learned by interviewing experts is that um, some people were particularly worried that if enough people died, you might lose some skill sets critical to recovery. Um, so maybe we lose all chemists, for example. Um, another approach I took was just doing some back of the envelope calculations to understand how important these differences might be. Um, so expanding on the example above, I ended up calculating the rough probability that all of the people with particular skill sets would die at different levels of population death, given how rare those skill sets are. 
So a bit of a morbid exercise, but um, I found that um, under at least a particular set of assumptions, um, there's almost no chance that we'd lose, um, for example, all the chemists in the world, even at 99.999% population death. Um, there are problems with the assumptions I made. Um, I won't go into those right now, um, but it gives at least a very rough sense of when this type of concern becomes really troubling. Um, and as a final point, I'll reiterate the importance of um, putting things down on paper, especially putting numbers to things um, and explaining kind of your methods so you can get feedback. Um, so for example, it turns out that I messed up the maths in the last table, um, which is a bit getting. Um, but at least uh, I'm closer to knowing how worried we should be about losing all chemists during a global catastrophe than I was before getting the feedback. Um, so I think that's really, really important. Um, yeah, so if this all sounds like something you might be interested in, um, I strongly encourage you to test your fit for it. I think they're pretty lost low-cost ways to do this. Um, so 80,000 Hours has a list of open questions they'd love to see answered. Um, you could see if any of them have sub-questions um, that you could spend a day on, a week on, um, and even write them up as a forum post or just share them to get some feedback. Um, you could consider looking at the effective thesis projects. Um, so these are projects that uh, are kind of um, undergraduate or graduate student sized that you might be able to do if you um, end up writing a thesis. Um, the Forthop Foundation, um, so my employer, has an undergraduate thesis prize um, for people working on kind of long-termist theses. Um, Forthop also has grants available for graduate students. Um, anyways, um, but yeah, in general, I think um, engaging with the forum, um, writing posts, they can be short, um, just posting things um, can be a great way to see if it seems like you can add, um, yeah, add value here. Um, there's some other things you could do. I recommend interdisciplinarity, as I said. And then um, there are also just a bunch of other questions I'd be excited to have answered. Um, here's a very long list. Um, I'm happy for people to get in touch if they want to learn more about these. Um, they're kind of in all disciplines and for a range of skill levels. So yeah, feel free to get in touch. Um, yeah, so I will take questions now. Okay, um, thanks Louisa so much for that really fascinating talk. Um, and thanks so much for joining us here now for this live Q&A session. Yeah, of course, happy to be here. I guess I'll start off with one of my own questions, uh, if that's okay. So um, on your, I think your last slide or one of your later slides, you had this really long list of interesting research questions that, that you'd like to see work on. I was wondering, is there any in particular that you think are particularly important or you'd be particularly um, excited to see people working on? Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so um, civilizational collapse is most on my mind right now. And I guess the things that um, I worry most about um, are less around extinction and more around how society would look after it recovered. So I'd be really interested in um, people trying to understand how, um, yeah, whether whether societies historically have looked different in systematic ways after catastrophes. For example, um, there's some research that suggests um, societies get more religious during and after wars. Um, I would love to know whether there are other systematic um, changes like that um, in any patterned way. Um, other things, I guess just like there's some very kind of concrete things that I don't have a full understanding yet in the space of like engineering and like 
Yeah, I guess just like how um, like concrete systems like the power grid work um, and what bottlenecks to bring all of these things back online would be. Um, I, I've learned like a bit about this, but I'd love for someone who can just like, yeah, learn a bunch um, to write up what they think maybe the most bottlenecky things are, or maybe which countries have particularly resilient um, physical infrastructure and what makes it resilient. Um, I think that'd be really interesting. Um, what else? Uh, I guess um, there's some work on, yeah, the kind of environmental and agricultural um, effects a nuclear winter might have, but it's very specific to certain regions. Um, so we know a bit about how Chinese um, agriculture would do in the event of um, a nuclear winter. But I'd love to understand, like, will some areas be suitable for agriculture? Um, like how suitable, how much could we fix things by changing to more robust crops? Um, so someone who understood maybe ecology, maybe other things around um, food production and climate stuff um, would be interested in that. Like some of these are like somewhat technical, others very social science-y, but um, yeah, all, all of those I would think were great. Yeah, cool. Um, it's such a broad area. It's um, just so impressive how you've got to span so many fields to, to do this, this kind of work. It's really cool. Um, it means there's lots of room for contributions from others because um, yeah. I don't have all the expertise. No, that seems, yeah, it seems like a very kind of multidisciplinary field, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. um, I guess just to follow up on that question of, um, you know, what some particularly important questions are, do you, do you have a process for how you work out what would be particularly important questions to answer? Mm. To work on? Yeah, um, I don't know if it's a totally systematic one, but um, yeah, kind of going back to the thing about deferring, um, I guess for civilizational collapse, for example, um, the way I approached answering the question or starting to was kind of writing up what the hypotheses would be for why civilization might not recover um, and then trying to really convince myself of those. Um, and whenever I got to the point where I wasn't convinced um, by arguments I'd heard people making about this, um, then I then that seemed like a really, that seemed like the place to be the place where um, I could either confirm what they were thinking and maybe add some evidence or um, kind of pushed back on it. Um, and yeah, I guess I guess I said this, but again, um, trying to, um, yeah, just trying to convince yourself um, of like the actual state of things uh, whenever you feel unconvinced, like what is that question? Like answer it well. And that's like probably the place you can add the most value. Yeah, cool. That makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, and I think it's a really important point, this, this um, idea of questioning things and not taking things for granted just because um, mm. some other smart people accept them. So that's really cool. Um, so I'll take a question from the chat now because we've got a few in there. Um, so there's one that says, slightly related to the social studies and history questions, how do you think colonialism and conquest will play a role in societies post-collapse? Would mm. it be a worthwhile avenue to explore or would it be considered too short-term? Yeah, um, so I think it's a really tough question. Um, so something that I think the space of things I worry most about, as I said, are um, like whether society's values um, change meaningfully after collapse. Um, so if, um, for example, um, the collapse led to lots of conflict um, and then 
conflict became, um, some certain things around conflict became more socially acceptable. Um, that would seem really troubling because we obviously don't want conflict to be like a more common um, thing or value. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm definitely interested in that. I guess there's, um, there's like, yeah, I work on empirical things. So like, I would be interested in this insofar as you could kind of figure out if there were any um, trends related to um, kind of historical catastrophes or collapse um, and how those relate to things like um, colonialism and conquest. Um, and then maybe there are papers that look at like the long-term effects of colonial and conquest. Actually, there are. So um, maybe a cool project um, would be like, um, there are some economic studies that look at the economic implications of um, countries that have been colonized um, or that have um, like, like involved lots of like slavery. Um, and so maybe looking at those studies, um, if you thought there was reason to think that after a collapse, um, there would be more colonial, colonialism and conquest. Um, and you think those things are kind of associated with negative economic growth. Um, then maybe you would worry about um, kind of ec economic growth issues after collapse. So yeah, I think that'd be, I think that'd be very interesting. Like, I think there are several um, kind of hypotheses to test there. Um, and I'm not sure how well each would hold up, but certainly um, I'd be excited if anyone wanted to, um, to like see what existed, see what kinds of evidence they could find in that direction. Yeah, cool. Um, so lots of interesting questions coming through now. Um, so more, another one, uh, which I think is maybe a bit similar to this is um, for this type of empirical global priorities research, how beneficial do you see more advanced statistical techniques as opposed to mm -hmm. relatively simple back of the envelope type um, maps? Yeah, um, I think, I see myself as like doing first passes on things. And then I very clearly start to hit on um, questions where I can tell that the answer I'm getting is just too simplistic to tell us much. Um, so for example, um, the question I asked about um, skill sets um, and whether we'd be likely to lose certain skill sets if certain levels of um, population death happened. Um, I, hit, I hit limits to what I could understand there because of maths limits. Um, so some assumptions I had to make were about kind of um, equal distribution of skill sets around the planet, um, which is probably very problematic. Um, I also had to make assumptions about kind of equal distribution of where the catastrophe caused the highest rates of fatalities. Um, and all of those things really bug me and make me kind of not trust the results of my Bowtech. Um, so there's a very clear case where if someone um, could do some more complex modeling, um, yeah, that actually was able to account for um, where chemists actually live, um, where certain catastrophes would have um, kind of the most drastic effects. Um, I think that would be meaningfully um, yeah, a meaningful improvement on the things I've done. Um, and I'd just be thrilled if someone did that. Yeah, cool. Um, so we don't have that much time left. Um, so maybe you just have one more question. Um, so somebody's asked if you could talk a little bit, a little bit about the Forethought Foundation. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, so um, the Forethought Foundation has um, kind of a general aim of um, building the field of global priorities research. Um, and they, try to do this in a couple of ways. Um, one is um, by 
doing things kind of like what I'm doing. So um, there are a number of researchers um, associated with forethought that produce um, reports that fall slightly outside of academia um, that are cause partisation-y. Um, so it's kind of like um, the Global Parties Institute um, but a bit less, yeah, less academic. Um, that's a small part of what they do, but that's what I do. So I'm most familiar with it. Um, another big thing they do, which I think is really exciting um, from the prospects, uh, yeah, from the perspective of students is um, they offer um, an undergraduate thesis prize. Um, so that is um, a prize that you can win if you write a thesis on something um, prioritization-y, long-termisty, um, and, I think they just came out with the finalists from this past year. Um, so I would highly recommend um, people apply for that prize. Um, and then they also give grants to researchers um, doing long-termist research in, in like graduate programs. Um, so I actually, I think Bridget um, could speak to that more at some point. Um, yeah, what else do they do? Um, yeah, they also support Will, um, who's writing yeah, a new book on long-termism. Um, so that's kind of where the army of um, empirical global priorities research is coming in um, doing these reports. Cool. All right, well, um, um, unfortunately we're out of time. Um, so, but I think Louise is happy for people to get in touch if they- Yep, they're happy for that. By email. So, um, but yeah, thanks so much for such a fascinating talk and taking the time to answer questions um, with me today. But um, yeah, thanks everybody for joining us for the session.